not even the people who are questioning very difficult things to question, like gender or whether banning organized religion is a good idea. Nobody is questioning the trackers. And I think that I wanted to look at how some things could become so ubiquitous that the ability to, to question whether they're appropriate just fades. So I'm sitting here with Ada, who wrote, uh, wrote Two Like Lightning and many of the other books in that series, which are very interesting worlds. So thanks for, very much for joining me here. My pleasure. And like, if we get into the world, uh, just what's the first thing that strikes us? Um, I mean, I think the first thing that strikes us is the shallow, there are flying cars. Uh, but I think the second thing that strikes us is the non-geographic nations, which the flying cars facilitate. Uh, so this is a future in which for several generations now, for more than eight generations, there has been a transit system so fast that you can go from anywhere on Earth to anywhere else on Earth in about two hours, which means that everywhere is commuting distance to everywhere else. And now it's perfectly reasonable to live in Sweden and work in Tokyo and have a lunch meeting in Buenos Aires and someone who's your spouse also lives with you in Sweden, but works in New York and has a lunch meeting in Antarctica. And this is all a reasonable distance, a reasonable drive for one day. And when you've been in that state as a, as a globe for a number of generations, the place where people live and the place where people work and the place where people are born start to be very divorced from that person's identity, right? You live there because there was a great house available when your family, when your parents wanted to buy a house. Um, and so it further advances something which is already happening in our own society, which is the, the strengthening of diasporic communities, not just the classic diasporas of displaced communities that we think of with something like the Jewish diaspora or the African diaspora, but the larger diasporas of people whose major contacts in life don't live near where they are, but are major contacts with them because they see each other uh, at a distance or they see each other online. And this divorces identity from geography, but it doesn't divorce identity from national heritage necessarily. So somebody might very powerfully feel that they are French or that they are Chinese or uh, another nationality, while never having lived in or worked in the spot on the globe that we associate with this, because it's about what language you speak when you get up in the morning. It's about what foods are your comfort foods and what foods are, are, are you know, ethnic foods to you uh, and that kind of thing. So in this future, nations no longer are tied to geography. They're tied to personally selected citizenship. And when you grow up and come of age and take the adulthood competency exam and become a grown-up, you choose which of a number of globe-spanning, non-geographic nations you feel best represents your identity and the, your values and the laws that you respect and want to be governed by, and you sign up for that 
nationality and you pay taxes to that organization and that organization supplies your social services and uh, you are governed by its laws regardless of where you live and your next door neighbors or indeed your spouse might be living under a different legal system where you know marijuana is legal for them but not for you and this is governed in the same way that countries today govern expats uh, just having become a situation where effectively everybody lives as if an expat. I think that's a super interesting world, and especially I think that even now we kind of have it in a sense with remote work and people, I mean, online lectures and everything, suddenly people actually go to school in a different country, in a different time zone, uh, right. and I mean, people work remotely and everything else. So in one sense there is, but of course we're still tied so many ways to the nation state. You go out and you have to you know, pay tax and you go to the hospitals supplied by your nation. Um, mm -hmm. And as you said, there, the laws you're bound by are those of your geography. Right. The ones that you are born into randomly uh, and the ones that you may move into if you shift where you live. Uh, and we have no choice about that. Or rather, it is possible to emigrate slash immigrate, but it is a very difficult, multi-year, expensive, challenging set of legal hoops, uh, which make it something that you only do when you really, really need to for some powerful reason. You know, there are plenty of people who do it, but there are many others who don't. And then the European Union is the sort of model of the transition because the European Union presents uh, a kind of citizenship which is semi-independent of geography in which you can move freely through this space and dwell wherever you like while remaining a citizen of the nation to which you were born. Uh, and so in the way I imagine the history of the world getting to this space, the European Union is in many ways the model that people had in mind when they developed the further step of the fully non-geographic nation. Just out of curiosity, do you see this as a positive vision or outcome, or do you see this as a negative vision outcome? Uh, the world is an intentional mix of positive and negative. I think that the non-geographic nations themselves are a very positive outcome. Um, there are certainly things about them one could see as negative. They have allowed nationalisms and some of the prejudices that go along with nationalisms to continue unabated, uh, even in a globalized future. So we don't have the sort of imagined Star Trek, no one cares about national and geographic differences anymore, one world state. Uh, and there are negative elements to that, but there are also positive elements to that because it means that heritage and tradition and these values are preserved. So it's one of many elements of the world that I designed to be and that readers have found sort of polarizing, uh, where depending on the individual and how you feel about whether preserving national heritage and national pride is positive or negative, the world will feel more positive or more negative to you. Yeah, because there's an interesting aspect of it, I find, which is the fact that you said when you come of age, you choose uh, what right. to join. And these, I mean, so-called hives, in one way, it feels almost like, it feels like some kind of global par parliamentarianism in one way, because the, um, the more people that join one of these post-nation states hives, uh, the more power that hive gets. Right. And so the hives compete to appeal to members. And it becomes a buyer's market for citizenship in which if a state is doing things that are unappealing to people, people will not choose to join that, that hive. And indeed, the process of switching hives is intentionally easy. Now, 24 hours, you are no longer a member of your hive. 
And it's usually a comparatively quick and easy process to join or begin the process of joining the new one. Uh, so that if, you know, suddenly in the middle of your life, your hive is going in a direction that you don't like, you can switch to a different one. And this holds the hives to a very high standard of pleasing their citizens, uh, which I imagine, you know, like any government infrastructure, there are going to be positive as well as negative elements to that. And certainly trying to constantly please and effectively bribe your citizenry is not always going to have positive results. But one of the effects is a major check on tyranny, because you really can't tyranny while within 24 hours someone can stop being your subject and be somebody else's. Uh, unless all the hives were to become tyrannies at the same time, you would always have the capacity to leave one and and other. Uh, so, for example, one of the hives that I uh, imagined, which is the Masons, is an absolute monarchy. Uh, because there are some people for whom power and strong authority and strong leader uh, is very appealing. And the idea of being part of a big thing with a strong, charismatic leader at the top of it is very appealing. But in a hive system, you can't have that person then become a cruel and tyrannical dictator because people would say, wait a minute, I don't want to be subject to a cruel, tyrannical dictator, and then not be. So it's a system which would allow even absolute monarchy to be held to a kind of standard of behavior. But it's interesting also because it creates many aspects that, because now when we think about nation states and nation states um, compete for, like today, we have the quote-unquote same situation but with legal organizations. So a lot of countries want to make sure that uh, companies start in their geography, in their uh, mm. country. And yes. there is kind of this almost silly race to the bottom where every single country wants to be as... Um, quote-unquote open-minded but like lax uh, towards the companies because then they get their tax money and they want to right. lower the tax as much as possible because then they get they get them to be there uh, and it and the interesting thing about the hives is that these hives are very very strong stances they're very different ways of thinking they're almost like mm -hmm. personality tests more than nations in a sense but also interesting that i can't see that there wasn't like a race to the bottom it's not that one hive says um, like r r zero taxes and, you know, you can do whatever you want and la 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 and something like all of them seem right. to be semi-sane or very good, uh, quote unquote, nations. Well, and a, and a part of that is that in addition to these hives, so the hives are in an alliance and we shouldn't compare hives to an individual country like Denmark. We should compare hives to an individual macro country like the European Union. Uh, and in fact, the European Union is one of them. <laughs> uh, the European Union, which still exists here in the 25th century, but has many, many more member states, including Canada and uh, the Philippines and New Zealand and Australia and many others that we hear mentioned briefly over the course of it. Uh, the European Union has come to be a union of uh, nations that like the structures of the European Union, where the individual nation holds a large role in power and has representation in parliament, and where the political representatives are chosen based on their national background. Uh, the other hives, which are of a scale comparable to the European Union, for the most part are ones where one's ethnic and linguistic background is much less significant in governance, and governance is selected through something else. Uh, so, for example, if you think of, I don't know, we can use the U.S. as a kind of comparison, but in the U.S., your representation isn't based on your ethnic background, right? It's based on your, uh, which state you happen to live in at the moment. 
Uh, whereas in the European Union, it does have quite a bit more to do with ethnic background because there's a stronger tie between where you were born and what ethnic background and uh, cultural background you come from. So some of the hives, the European Union and another called the Mitsubishi, uh, focus a lot on where you're from and what language you speak. Others don't. Um, but separate from all of the hives, there is a single central alliance organization which lubricates the process of moving in between them and which provides a hiveless alternative. Uh, so you can be a member of these and they have different ideologies that you might be drawn to. I mentioned the Masons, which have the sort of strong authoritarian leadership ideology. Uh, there are the humanists, which have a sort of celebration of human excellence uh, all about the Olympics and sports and singers and performance and music and uh, pushing yourself to your best. There's the, um, uh, the cousins, which are uh, all about uh, helping others and doing a lot of charity work and cooperating and, and being supportive of each other. And they run a lot of the schools and the hospitals. Uh, so those people, uh, those appeal to people because people uh, feel that their identity matches well with that pattern of behavior. If what you want is low taxes, you become a Blackwell Hiveless. Uh, so the Central Union offers <clears throat> three di different, quote-unquote, generic, generic law codes, um, which are, by default, the law code you end up in if you're not in a hive at any given time. And this might be because you're transitioning from one hive to another, or it might be because you didn't like any of the hives and you want to be governed by one of these sort of more neutral generic law codes. These laws are passed by a Senate that has representatives from all of the hives, as well as tribunes of hiveless who have a veto. And we get to learn more about <clears throat> the details of this system. Uh, but there are three states of the law uh, white law, gray law, and black law. Gray law is standard and has all of the laws you would sort of generically expect a country to have. So murder is illegal, violence is illegal, theft is illegal, uh, that kind of thing. White law is the more restric restrictive version where you know various medical and fitness things are, are legally mandated because it's considered to be good for you. And uh, you know various recreational drugs and prostitution, et cetera, are illegal because many people consider that to be better for you to, to be in a state where those things are forbidden. So it's a law code that is there generically as something for people who want that more restrictive state. And that appeals to some people. And then the opposite is black law, which is this radical, uh, radical extreme where you pay very, very little in taxes, if anything. Um, but uh, there are almost no laws that govern you. There's a set of, uh, uh, <clears throat> there's a set of 10 laws which say things like it's illegal to torture a child, it's illegal to uh, start mass carnage that causes unrestricted and uncontrolled loss of human life on a grand scale, um, it's illegal to uh, unnecessarily torture an animal, uh, but it doesn't even outlaw murder if the person you're murdering is also a black law for whom murder is legal. And so if you want that minimum intervention, maximum liberty, uh, libertarian option, it's there and you can do it and you can choose it. Almost everyone around you will not have chosen it. So only a very few people are subject to the Hobbesian war of all in all. But if that's what you want, you go for it. And so because the neutral state offers the race to the bottom legal option, none of the hives are going to get anything from doing the race to the bottom legal option. What they get 
uh, is from having a strong identity and strong character where people look at it and say, yeah, I would be proud to be a cousin and have everyone who looks at me and recognizes that I'm a cousin know that I'm kind and that I care a lot about people and that I work really hard on helping the world to be a kinder, better place. Or I'm very proud of people knowing that I'm someone who chose to be in the European Union and that I feel that my identity as somebody from the Philippines is very important to me and that I want my legal representation to be done by somebody who was chosen for representing my nationality. It's interesting because, as you said now, there's a pride, which actually you can also see. People, there's almost like a dress code, or I would say mm -hmm. there is a dress code connected to each hive. So people are very much show what hive they joined. Um, do, you, do you feel that that is... Uh, is like, how did that come about? Do you think that's a necessary part of this kind of world to work? Or do you think it's just... Uh... Uh, so, to some extent, it's necessary. Um, you know, we always use clothing as communication, right? Clothing is a tool for communication. It communicates social status. It communicates in-group, out-group. It communicates things about gender. It communicates a wide variety of things. And this has been true in the past even more powerfully than today, One of the interesting attributes of fashion, at least in the modern West, uh, I'm going to take America for you the as the example because it's the place where I've done the most study. In the U.S. right now, 80% of the population identifies as middle class. And so many, many people that you see are trying to project one class identity. And even people who are extremely wealthy are attempting to project a middle class class identity. So you don't have it as conspicuous that people are communicating things like class with their clothing, because for the most part, people are trying to communicate this sort, a sort of homogenous class message. Unlike when you look at European history, for example, and there's very clear differences between what the different social classes wore in the Renaissance. Um, but we still communicate through clothing. And in this future, people also communicate through clothing. But in a system where, you know, you're walking along the street and... For some of the people here, it is legal to sell this product to them. But for other of the people, it is illegal to sell this product to them. And they will get in trouble if they buy it. It's much more effective if everybody can tell at a glance who is under which law, right? So that if you are someone who sells a shop that sells, I don't know, marijuana gummies, uh, you know which customers are in a position to buy this and which customers are not, Um And so that when you're interacting with someone, you recognize this. And also when people take a high degree of pride in their identity as members of a particular hive, there's also a greater, in, uh, a greater desire to project it. So I posit something that I call the clothing as communication movement, which happened in the, I would have to pull up my calendar, I think it's late 22nd century. Uh, in the midst of the hives becoming the major political system of the world, in which there was a big surge, uh, just a cultural enthusiasm for this, lots of people in, in big places talking about it and talking about how they could create a new society that was more transparent and honest than any before if everybody wears their citizenship on their sleeve, literally. Literally, yeah. Um, and so in that period, these very different dress codes developed, which then also do facilitate interactions with people when you're under different law codes. Uh, so... People wear different clothing depending on what hive they are. 
there are also we see where people wearing sort of wristband versions of the hive information for like i'm a sailor and i do a lot of my work with no shirt on and no i can't wear this suit coat because it's incompatible with my work but i can have a bracelet of braid in the colors of the flag of the hive and then that communicates the same uh, and so people are so used to being able to understand other people's citizenship and identity at a glance that people actually feel a little bit weirded out when you see somebody who doesn't fit into any of these categories and whose identity you can't pin down in that way. Hmm. Uh, it's a super interesting aspect. And also, like, because the world is so much more about the, the kind of ideological identity in that sense and projecting that, there's another hmm. identity which has been... I wouldn't say disappeared, but gender identity is is gone or it's not gone hidden. or not gone. Exactly, that, and that's like tell, tell me about gender in this world. I mean, people right. definitely still have gender. Um, yeah, so I'll I'll describe first what we see, and then I'll talk a little bit more about how I'm how I'm develop what I'm developing with it. Uh, so what we see is that people wear generally gender neutral clothing. And in normal speech, at least in English, to which we have the most access, but seemingly also in a number of the other major languages, no gendered language is used anymore. Everybody uses they in English rather than he or she. Uh, the singular they has taken over. It's actually been very interesting to me as an author watching the singular they surge in popularity while the series was coming out. Because when I first made drafts of it, uh, which was in 2008, my readers really struggled with the singular they and demanded that I have lots of language sort of explaining it and articulating it. But then by the time the books actually came out, none of that was necessary because the singular they is everywhere, which has been a neat to watch a rapid change even while the books were developing. Um, and so in everyday interaction, gender is uh, not acknowledged in speech and not supposed to be something that people are thinking very much about. And this society believes itself to be gender neutral and takes pride in being gender neutral. Our narrator then claims that this is false and that there really is a lot of interior thought about gender and that the interactions people have with each other on a daily basis are strongly colored by awareness of gender and the gender is still in people's heads, even if it isn't in people's mouths. And the reader of the book then has to wonder, why does the narrator think this and is the narrator right? And as it advances, we encounter some groups of people who are ostentatiously using gender, using gendered language and gendered clothing as a sort of exciting, taboo-breaking, naughty thing uh, with the same kind of exciting uh, semi-forbidden status that you might uh, associate today with BDSM of this thing is exciting in part because it's taboo, and so we do it uh, because it is therefore titillatingly exciting. And you're like, okay, that's interesting. Gender as as a play-form taboo thing. Uh, and we keep hearing different characters discuss it more. Um, and especially toward the end of book two, we get toward what I would say is the central thing I'm interested in exploring, which is this is a society that, botched the end game of feminism and of gender liberation. This is a society that grew out of ours and was working very hard on it, but then came to a certain point in its history and declared, okay, we're done. There's gender equality. The laws are the same. 
uh, women can have all the same jobs men can have, we're done, we're not going to talk about it anymore. And this reflects how you sometimes hear people make comments, well, you did up until recently, I haven't heard this in the past couple of years, but you used to hear people say comments like, we don't need feminism anymore, feminism is done. Um, and I was trying to think, well, what would happen if, if people became convinced of that and we acted on it and we decided to stop having proactive progress, to stop you know, monitoring the gender gap, to stop having gender studies research, to stop talking about gender to kids in school, uh, to stop watching for glass ceiling kinds of things and just declared ourselves to be done without rooting out the unconscious gender biases and the way they saturate our behavior and the way we teach them to kids unconsciously when they're young so that the structures got passed on along with a denial of the structures still being there. So this is a society which, for 250 years, has not been making any progress on rooting out the unconscious biases around gender that survive because it denies that they're there. Uh, and they're, one of the consequences of that is that the characters who are concerned with gender and who perceive there to be gender in this world are super inept at talking about it. And they talk about it as a sexual taboo, or they talk about it as a poison, or they talk about it in different ways, um, which is me trying to imagine, suppose your society hasn't had any apparatus for talking about gender for 250 years, and you're starting from scratch to do this, you would be clumsy at it. In the same way that when we read 18th century feminism and proto-feminism, and you see people who are arguing for women's rights, and they're using arguments that are abhorrently offensive hmm. now... <laughs> Because the way they're starting to talk about it is much less sophisticated than us who've been talking about it very actively for a while. So I'm representing the, uh, you know, every time you come to one of these discussions of gender, they're intentionally very uncomfortable. Uh, partly because I'm trying to show, look, if we stop having this conversation and we pretend that this isn't still here and we pretend that we're finished... One of the consequences of that lie to ourselves could be losing the sophisticated apparatus we have for watching and talking about it and degenerating into a state in which, while some progress has been made, no more progress is being made and it's become harder because the apparatus for dealing with attempting to achieve that progress has been dismantled. Mm. And it is very interesting because, I mean, of the two levels or multiple levels in the books, really, that there is... You, you understand some gender. You have, as you said, you have people who explicitly show their gender, which is absolutely almost taboo or is taboo. And then you have the narrator who expresses gender and definitely misgenders or expresses gender very strangely and, and, and confusing for the reader in a way where you actually have to think about gender massively as a reader. Exactly. Which I think really well done. Yeah, so the, the narrator assigns gendered pronouns, he or she to pretty much all of the characters based on the narrator's assessment of whether that person's personality fits into the male category or the female category. And as we read, we discover more and more that these assignments of pronouns certainly don't match people's anatomy or physical descriptions. And we'll have somebody who's been given a she pronoun and suddenly has a beard, uh, and, and so we're left wrestling sort of in this, wait, I thought that he and she were communicating one thing to me. Really, they're communicating much more the 
narrator's opinion than the people. What does that mean? All of which is designed to make you grow increasingly, A, distrustful of the gendered pronouns, and therefore, B, to think critically about how the gendered pronouns are making you think about these people. And you come to a moment where there's a character that you've been thinking of as a he for a book and a half, <laughs> and suddenly you have evidence that the body looks female, and then you suddenly feel differently about that character. That's the moment where what I want is for the reader to say, whoa, why do I suddenly feel different about this character now? Why does it matter to me that this character, whose gender I didn't think really mattered, suddenly has this gender instead of that? What does that tell me about the way I judge people differently when I perceive them to be male, when I perceive them to be female. Another thing people learn is which pronoun sticks in your head so that when you are thinking and form a sentence about that person, do you end up using he or do you end up using she? And it will very frequently be different for different characters. And sometimes the pronoun in your head will match what the narrator is using and sometimes the pronoun in your head will not match what the character is using. And if you have a friend who you talk to, the pronouns in their head will not match the pronouns in your head all of which are designed to stimulate a conversation about what are these pronouns really doing? How am I judging people based on them? The goal being that you get to the end of the books more distrustful and I don't, I, I think distrustful is the wrong word, more considerate in general of what pronouns are doing within your own mind and your own judgment as you read, as you speak, as you talk to people, as you think about politicians. Yeah, and it's like it's interesting because in, in in this world, people actually do use gendered pronouns. If you, for example, compare it to Persian or other languages that actually are contemporary languages that don't have gender, they can right. have a built-in they. But in in this world here, people do use he and she constantly. And I think one of my favorites was when you had Jean-Jacques Rousseau mentioning as a she, uh, right. whereas is whereas even historical character, where like from a world where gender was another thing. Yeah. Because by the personality types that the narrator associates with the feminine, Jean-Jacques Rousseau would be a she. And then that's just sort of mind-blowing. Like, wait a minute, what? Uh, but it's a thing people could do with language, right? People have done very weird things with language over time. Uh, and so all of it is designed to cultivate you personally playing with and learning more about what gender does to your own head and in your own mind. Another interesting aspect of the world when we talk about law is, of course, that crime, like punishments of crime, sorry, mm -hmm. we don't have jails anymore. Like, at least right. not what I know. We, we have very few. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. We have pretty much only have jails for people who are, you know, uh, who are insane in a way that makes them violent or something like that, uh, or temporary ones while people are facing, uh, facing uh, the actual trial. But we don't have... Uh, general pattern of incarceration being the long-term penalty for stuff. Uh, so this society has what's called the servicer system. Uh, obviously, the legal system has to be very complicated when any, any given person might be under different law from the person that they just mugged. Uh, and so there's a profession called a polylaw, which uh, handles uh, criminal cases where two, two or more hives are involved, and all of the hives have worked out complicated patterns to this. Um, but the standard sort of top rank punishment, which for us would be equivalent to life in prison or execution, is, okay, you've committed a very serious crime. The crime is so serious that even if every single dollar you earned for the rest of your life was taken as a fee, you couldn't possibly pay the fine. You become a servicer. Uh, you may not own property. You may not live 
in a family in a home, uh, but you live in dormitories that are run by the system and you travel around the world doing helpful work for people who need helpful work. Uh, and so on any given day, you might be mucking up a sewer spill in a place, or you might be weeding somebody's garden, or you might be a computer programmer and applying your computer programming skills to something that somebody needs for a day. Uh, and then you earn your food from working for people and, and being helpful. And when people, when you've done a job for someone, they give you a meal and that's the standard exchange. And so there's this uh, population that moves around the world that uh, cannot earn money and cannot own property uh, and cannot effectively have uh, economic independence, but lives as a permanent servant of the state, which means not of the government, but of the people. This is modeled, as the narrator tells us, on a system that Thomas More in his Utopia says is being used in Persia, although like most European authors who are writing about Persia, this is very much imaginary Persia uh, rather than a knowledge of historical realities. Um, but it creates a system in which instead of locking up this labor or controlling this labor, this labor is uh, made available to the public. The figures we see who are part of the services system talk about it very positively, uh, talk about it as being much better than the prison system. Uh, but it's, it's intentionally in there as one of the, okay, there's still, you know, this is a, a, pretty, a pretty peaceful world. There's been 300 years of world peace, but there's still crime. There's still a social apparatus for handling crime. It has positive and negative elements, and this is one of the ways that we look at it. And the narrator is one of these people who has committed a severe crime and therefore is a lifelong servant of the public. It, but it's interesting also that it feels that, first of all, it feels like you can't kind of fall lower. Like if you've committed a deadline and become a, serv a crime and become a servicer, you can't, it can't get, quote-unquote, worse. Um, and the other thing is that it feels like status-wise, people don't seem to that, they're not afraid or look down that much on the services. I mean, we see a couple points where they're sort of throwing garbage at some servicers at one point, but that's when there's a kind of a riot. So there is somewhat a looking down, uh, but it it doesn't have the fear that one might associate with criminality, partly because everyone trusts the vetting system, that if this person were violently dangerous, they wouldn't be a servicer. They would be in the very small population that's in jail. Uh, and one of the premises of the servicer system is that because you don't have any personal property, the vast majority of incentives for crime are gone because it's you can't you know buy and sell contraband and use the profits. You can't embezzle, you can't meaningfully rob. The servicer dorms, you know, keep a tab on you and check what personal possessions you have and have a register of them and you have to have a special permission slip to have it even, you know, your favorite book. Um, as, a, as a personal physical object. Uh, so for that reason, anybody whose crime was economic and profit motivated can no longer do that. Um, and so a lot of, the, and, and we learn early on that the assumption most people make when they encounter a servicer is that the crime was financial, uh, that the crime was some kind of theft or embezzlement or uh, graft. Um, and uh, or possibly that it was a 
violent crime, but that it was a violent crime triggered by something that people absolutely don't think would be repeatable, like, you know, somebody was responsible for the death of your beloved sibling, and so you killed that person. You're not going to do that again, plausibly. Um, and that the assumption is that things that were violence for violence's sake, that population doesn't enter the service or population. Uh, Another thing that's happened in this world is also that religion and, and um, uh, religion is gone and, and even forbidden. And we have a new kind of person, which is a some mix between kind of a, a minister, but also kind of a coach or a therapist, the sensayers. Yes. So organized religion has been banned in this society, meaning getting together in groups for group prayer meetings, having a building, etc. But private belief and private spirituality, having a personal set of beliefs about where you think the universe came from and how you think it works, is considered to be uh, absolutely necessary for a healthy and happy human life. Uh, the, but uh, so you have a, a, a sensei or everybody has a sensei or you see your sensei every so often and your sensei's job is to neutrally discuss with you all of the different theologies and philosophies of world history and help you engage with them, sort through them, find the ones that appeal to you and assemble your own private belief system, which might be a version of a Christianity or a version of an Islam or a version of a Judaism or a hybrid of Platonism and, and Stoicism or something. Uh, or it might be one of a number of different atheist ways of, of seeing the world. Uh, or it might be something wholly original that you cobbled together from 11 different things. Uh, and that's between you and your sensei, and your sensei is required to be neutral about this and just guide you toward what is a satisfying set of beliefs for you. It's then illegal to discuss those unchaperoned with someone else. The whole system being built on paranoia that organized religion is the root of war. And this society very broadly believes that organized religion has usually been the root of war, and that by banning organized religion, that's key to why they've been able to have so much world peace. Now, whether they're correct about this is uh, a question that should be being thought critically about by the reader, but they certainly uh, very strongly hold that this is true. Um, and this is another one of the elements that I designed with the intention that it polarize readers, and it does polarize readers. Uh, because some readers come to it and say, wow, this is the best. This is the best way to handle religion because nobody's obnoxious, proselytizing parents can shove stuff down their throat. And no politician can try to advance a religious agenda and, uh, and oppress people by doing so. But everybody gets the support and richness and internal strength of whatever they want. And everything is fair and equal. This is paradise. And, you know, that person's roommate will read the book and say, this is absolutely totalitarianism. You can't talk about what you think is true about the world with your best friend. You can't have a wedding uh, or a bat mitzvah. You can't carry on the traditions of your society. This is absolute totalitarianism. And the people will look at each other and say, well, I guess this d difference in our reactions shows how we actually have different things in what we associate with religion and what we see religion contributing to our lives. So in, a, in an intentionally sinister way, we hear quite early on in the book that there are what are called reservations, uh, that there's, there's, a, there's a Mennonite reservation in Pennsylvania, that there's a Vatican reservation, 
uh, that Tibet is a reservation, that there's something called the Great African Reservation. And we don't know quite what these are yet, uh, but we do know that one can practice religion in them. And in fact, when people in the society want to have a religious wedding or something like a bar mitzvah, they will go to a reservation, rent a cabin there, do it, and then come back to the society because it's legal there. And this is a sort of weird legal workaround that is intentionally both, okay, it solves it, but it solves it in an uncomfortable and kind of hypocritical way. Uh, as legal systems so often solve problems. Uh, so the the hunger for organized religion as a cultural force is still around uh, and is absolutely in a state of tension where some people are like, nope, I really, really want religiosity to be at the core of, of my life and I want to be able to talk about it with others and I will renounce this entire world and live in what is called a reservation and do whatever it is the, the books are, at least through book three, very opaque about the nature of the reservations on purpose uh, to make this a big question mark in the mind of the reader um, and and why they are and, and how many there are and what percentage of the population of the world lives in them and how they formed and all of that is intended to be something one is speculating about and thinking about uh, different ways it could have happened and ways it could be good or bad depending on that narrative. Um, so we see, you know, one of the major characters is a senseier. We see a lot of engagement with this. Uh, and we see what happens when the world is put under pressure where people want to talk about religion and can't, question mark, can't dot, 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 but need to dot, 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 question mark, uh, and how you resolve that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a very interesting aspect. And one of the aspects is just the fact that everybody has, um, even if it was everybody has a, um, priest or minister or rabbi, even that by itself is a very interesting hypothesis. Like you would have a, you would have a quote-unquote coach of your own, and then it would be even better, of course, if you chose the religion completely freely without your parents. But another thing which I think gets to the kind of totalitarian aspects of, of the books, because it's interesting because the books are, in one way, it feels like ultra-libertarianism with the hives, for example, but then you have these uh, top-down laws and ways, not only laws, but cultural things that, for example, the sensors or gender. But then the third one, are the trackers? Yeah. So are the trackers like, you know, tell me about the trackers. Yeah, so we learn that people have a thing called a tracker. Uh, we know that you can make calls on it and talk to people on it. We know that you can look up information on it. Uh, we know that it, it connects, at least in some people's cases, with lenses, which let them see text and read stuff without a screen. Uh, and we know that it monitors your location, and we know that it monitors your uh, medical well-being and things like if you have a sudden spike in heartbeat, a little alarm will go off, and it'll call the police in case something bad is happening to you unless you cancel the help call signal. Uh, and we also, so it, it smells, uh, but then we very rapidly learned that you can just turn them off whenever you want and that that's fine and there are no consequences. Um, and everybody has one and nobody talks negatively about this being surveillance. Uh, so one of the things I'm getting at there is let's look at a society in which the transition to increased technological surveillance just happens and nobody even thinks anymore that it might be bad. Uh, what happens when the world stops thinking about the potential manipulation of, uh, of surveillance and just everyone is surveilled all the time and doesn't think about it? 
uh, is that lack of a critical lens something that we should find alarming? Um, and then the other interaction with that is one of the reasons people trust this most is what's watching you is your government, which you chose and which you like and which in an instant you can walk away from. Uh, and so people trust their governments a lot more because they consider their governments to be answerable to them. Uh, whether they're right about the degree of answerability is a important question. But people feel much more comfortable being surveilled by a group they personally signed up to be part of than by a government where you are trapped under this government by the luck of where you were born and you don't have an option about whether you're being surveilled or not being surveilled, right? If anybody doesn't want to be surveilled, they can, A, they can turn their tracker off, but B, they can go uh, join some organization that, that watches them less. Um, and, and so, you know, there's definitely a lot of data collected about people and we see some of the ways that people who process big data uh, are involved in this society, you know, all the way through it should make us think about a future in which surveillance just is. It's not a question anymore, it just is. But because the governments are more trusted, the surveillance is more trusted. Yeah, because in one interesting aspect, I mean, when I read it, and also now when you're describing it, I think that it's very hard for somebody to not, like, hear you describing an Apple Watch or something. It, it sounds exactly like it. It's just the difference is that in, and, and people chose to have an Apple Watch because they kind of believe in Apple not mistreating their data. And then some people would say, no, I'm a, I'd love to have a Google Watch because I want it to predict things for me because I believe that Google are not going to do nasty things with my data. And essentially these, I mean, in a sense, the hives are kind of like mega corporations in one way. It's just mm -hmm. like the way we have them today are very much like you, they still, of course, affect tax and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's well, and two of the hives evolved out of mega corporations. So you know, each of the hives evolved out of a different thing. The European Union evolved out of the European Union. The Mitsubishi evolved out of the Mitsubishi Economic Group, which is a mega conglomerate of multiple corporations. Uh, the Gordian developed out of a mega corporation as well. Um, <clears throat> but the trackers here is the intent. I mean, if you, like, for example, Nick Bostrom's The Vernal, Vernable World Hypothesis, where his hypothesis is that we could invent something which would be extremely detrimental to the world. His example is uh, if you microwaved sand, it would be like a nuclear bomb. Um, so that you pull something out of the innovation hat and that thing is, is really, really bad for the world. And so far we haven't found anything which is that bad, which is so easy to use. Like nuclear bombs are kind of complicated. AI, we don't really know how bad it is. Maybe maybe AI is really, really bad. But one of the uh, ways Nick Bergstrom in his hypothesis writes about this, he says that the, one of the ways to handle this would be to track everybody. Mm -hmm. um, is that like where you see, are the trackers essentially to make sure that nobody destroys the world? Or why why do people have trackers? Uh, I mean, very much in the Apple Google Watch element of it, right? People feel safer when their hive, which protects them, is watching them. And remember, you're, you're surrounded by people who are under a different legal system. So you want surveillance to be able to be on your side and say, look, this person violated me and my laws were violated by this thing. Uh, so people feel safer with it, with the police on call, with the knowledge that if you suddenly get knocked unconscious, there will be help. Um, whether that trust is appropriate is something we should think about. But I mean, imagine how differently you as the reader would feel if instead of calling it a tracker, I'd called it a phone. <laughs>
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because it does exactly the same things as a phone in every detail. But I call it a tracker because in the society, people are very conscious that one of its functions is that it's the manner through which your hive watches you and, and thereby protects you. And people perceive the hives as protecting them much more than controlling or oppressing them. Because if you wanted to not be uh, part of this organization, you'd go become a hiveless. Um, and we do see the system get abused a little bit in different directions. Uh, and But we also see how nobody questions it. Not even the people who are questioning very difficult things to question, like gender or whether banning organized religion is a good idea. Nobody is questioning the trackers. And I think that I wanted to look at how some things could become so ubiquitous that the ability to, to question whether they're appropriate just fades. Which doesn't mean it can't come back, but the society doesn't have it. And I think that's what's so interesting about this world, that it's, it is a world where certain new things have become obvious and, and people have strong convictions and certain things are not. And I think that's super interesting. Because just as you said with trackers, I mean, if you look at the polarized spectrum, if we call them trackers or calling them phones, that's different. But I think it's like if you look at the positive connotation of trackers, it would be called connectors. Like it connects mm. you to your hive. And it's a very positive thing. And calling yeah. them a phone is like the utility value they provide, uh, like, you know, old, like the historical legacy one. Uh, but I, I found it to be a super interesting concept. Uh, and there's one more concept in the books. There are many more concepts. There's one more yeah. I want to bring up, which are the, the bashes. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so please explain the bashes to me. Uh, so the standard living unit, the standard unit of uh, um, social unit, is not to the nuclear family anymore. Uh, it is the ba- bash, which comes from the Japanese word ibasho. Uh, Ibasho means a good place, but it has the strong sense of being the the one place where you most belong and can be most yourself. And it has a strong sense of being not just a physical location. I mean, you use it for, you know, where does that book go? It goes in its place on the shelf. But in a social world with people, it very much means the community among whom you can be yourself. Um, Ibasho in Japanese comes up a lot in discussions of elder care and how important it is for a, an older person to be able to remain in their ibasho among the people with among whom they can be themselves, that, that kind of thing. So that's the, the root of the word. Uh, we could get shortened to bash over time because ibasho is a, a, a challenging word for Anglophones and English has become the most dominant of a number of dominant languages in the world. Um, And it's a group of usually between five and 15 adults who are friends. Some of them are married to each other. Some of them are not. Some of them are sexual sets. Some of them are not. They live together. They have kids together. They raise those kids together. And uh, kids that are raised together are called basibs and are considered siblings in every significant way, even if they're not blood related. there, there's a twin logic behind this. One is, I'm a historian, and when I do world building, a lot of what I do is, instead of starting in the present, going back 200 years and starting then, and saying, okay, what has been in flux between 200 years and now? What's changing now? That's likely going to be different in the future. So, for example, gender has totally been in flux for 200 years. Gender 200 years from now will not be what gender is now. Nobody can predict what it will be, but it sure won't be what gender is now. Similarly, the, the atomized nuclear family is a very recent, right, mid-20th century, really, development. 
and it is dynamically unstable. It works very badly with the new model of both parents often having careers. Uh, we're already seeing big tensions with it, making kinds of childcare crises. Uh, and we're already seeing more and more trends of people seeking alternate housing uh, and living situations. There were hippie communes in the 60s and 70s. Uh, there's an increasing trend of multiple family houses, uh, especially among millennials, partly because it's easier to share a home than to not, partly because you finish college, you have a bunch of friends you want to live together. Uh, and so, you know, given the history that up until quite recently, a single family home was parents and grandparents and cousins living together and or uh, a nuclear family with servants and servant family with it in one household unit, uh, and the atomized nuclear family is very recent, I didn't think the atomized nuclear family would plausibly continue as it is without some significant change. And then to try to say, okay, what significant change will it be? There are these interesting examinations of people living more together. And if you think about the moment when you finish school and you graduate and you have a bunch of friends and then you all go off to different places and live there because that's where your job is. And what really pulls those strong social units apart is geography. Well, if this world doesn't have the geographic barrier, you can all live together in Buenos Aires or wherever you could buy a good house. And if somebody's job is in Salt Lake City and somebody else's job is in Mumbai, that's not a problem. Um, and so it makes it possible and practical for large numbers of adults who have to have different careers to be able to live together in one socially supportive friend unit. Uh, so that that was, to me, an interesting social model to experiment with. And I find what, what I find so interesting also about science fiction today is that many of the concepts, when when the author is writing it and it feels futuristic, it's happening under our eyes, it happened under our feet, as you said, with gender, as we're saying with how people are like co-living now, um, mm -hmm. how we see with trackers, like many of these things are, when you're writing the book, you feel like you're, you know, jumping hundreds of years in the future. And maybe like even the first draft, people say, wow, this is super complicated with singular they. And then when the book comes out, it's not a strange concept. And that's like, that's pretty absurd that things can go that, like happen that fast in a culture. Yeah. I mean. Well, we are in a, an era of fast change. One of the fun things about being a historian and writing about the future is that I get to speculate about how the future talks about the present, how, how this future talks about us, uh, because every era in human history has had different narratives of what its past is. You know, And you get to the Renaissance, and the Renaissance invents the idea of a Middle Ages, and there wasn't an idea of a Middle Ages before that point, but they invent the idea of a Middle Ages, and you get to other points and they come up with different things. Did Rome decline and fall, or did Rome just fall? Uh, these are perceived differently at different points. And so in the 25th century, they're going to have a name for our era. It's not going to be modern, because <laughs> modern is the current era in any given situation. Um, so I, I like, I enjoy seeding the books with glimpses of the way they narrativize their history. So we learn at one point that... Um, they they have an era they refer to as the exponential age, which went from the Black Death to the World Wars. Just that by itself is very telling for how they're thinking about this past, and also that they consider themselves to not be in the exponential age. 
Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the thing I really like about the book, that it's, it is very much a future history uh, and not just futurism. Do you think there are parts of this world we could learn from now? I mean, I think it's very useful looking at a model of um, bringing diaspora more and more into politics and really thinking and caring about it. I think that one of the challenges we've been seeing in politics, particularly in U.S. politics, is that geography as it used to be makes less and less sense and its relics in our legal systems and our government systems are becoming more and more challenging when, you know, what was the whole idea of having a congressional district? It was this, this congressperson who would represent a bunch of people with shared interests. Well, people with shared interests aren't all people who live in the same area right now. They're all people who work in the same industry, for example. Uh, and if you were creating a new version of a congressional map right now, what if that congressional map weren't related to uh, geography at all, but were related to the centers of where there are people working in the fishing industry versus where there are people who are working in uh, computer programming versus where there are people who consider their identity as Chinese-Americans to be a significant thing and want to have a specific congressperson for them. Uh, so looking at different ways that geography can intersect with our culture, I think, is an important way of bringing people's attention to the fact that geography as it was and geography as it is have radically different implications for politics. And many of the elements of our current political systems were created to accommodate geography as it was. You know, my book looks at this. Another great series that looks at this is Malka Older's Centennial Cycle, uh, beginning with Infomocracy. She has a different, uh, hers is nearer future, but she has a different semi-independent of geography political system in which the world is divided up into a, a map of chunks which have 100,000 residents. And so in a very rural area, it might be a large area. In a city, it might be you know just a couple of city blocks. And then every time there's elections, everybody votes for which of a bunch of different governing units they like and want to be represented by and whichever gets the majority in that block of 100,000 rules that spot and you get a pixelated map of the world in which different governments rule different chunks scattered all over the place uh, and then the geography radically redraws itself every time there's an election uh, th these two series together are just very useful at getting us to think about how much geography's remnants are ingrained in the systems we developed and how it would be wise as we think about adjusting those systems to keep in mind that almost no one these days lives near everyone that's important to them. And if you made a list of the top 50 people who's, who are most significant in your life, right, many of them would not be near you. And this is true of almost everyone. And six-year-olds are growing up with friends on another continent through online intersection. Uh, and that's something that we've never had before, um, but that is a real set of communities. And I think that those who designed our current governments weren't wrong to think that communities have special needs that need representation. But drawing geographic lines on a map in a traditional way is no longer achieving that. Lobbying groups are achieving that. All sorts of other awkward workarounds are achieving that.
Yeah, because it is interesting. We're living in a time where unions are, are you know, not gone, but lost a lot of their power. And we're like super, super individualized. And and the only few communities that are left that, that really, really affect us are our countries. But the thing is, those are, as you said, they're very strange that you're born in a country and that's why the one affects you. And I think that like lostness of not belonging to anyone creates other issues. So it, it makes a lot of sense to create hives or diasporas or something. I mean, we have lots of groups, but we don't invest them with political significance. So there are alumni networks uh, that are significant groups. There are your co-workers in your job or your industry that are significant to our lives. There are sports team fan groups, you know, with whom one has strong solidarity and often more of a sense of pride and investment than some people have in their nationalisms. Um, what do you feel like what scares you in this world uh, in our world or in the Terragnota world <laughs> what do you think <laughs> uh, in the in the Terragnota world uh, I think that uh, the it's a world with a lot of silences uh, it's a world with a lot of censorship as we see on page one which is a list of who can censor what it's a world where people trust censorship and trust silences and and a lot of people genuinely believe that being forbidden to talk about xyz is good for society uh and nobody not even the narrator is presented as questioning that uh, at least in the first three books uh, and i think that that is intentionally scary um that everyone accepts that these forced silences are positive and that they are and people believe that these are keeping the peace um, I think that I intend to be scary, and I would find that scary. Um, you know, uh, uh, so that that's a big one. Uh, it's it's to me the scariest thing isn't what law is on the books of a nation. The scariest thing is what questions are absent from the minds of people. Uh, and when I look as a historian at the Renaissance and earlier. There's a lot of scary things, and the Black Death is one of them, but the complete absence of feminism as a concept from people's minds is scarier uh, in that it's so pernicious and so destructive, and you see it, and you see how people are behaving without it, and you get this chill. Uh, or the assumption that you see in the Renaissance that you can only ever have peace if you wipe out all but the ruling political faction. Uh, that until Machiavelli, the assumption was if you have two political parties in your state, what you have to do is have one of them wipe the other one out to the last man. Uh, and seeing people genuinely believe that and then act upon it is really scary. Uh, the scary, amazing, beautiful, rich, alien, exciting, but scary parts of the differences between different time periods aren't on the books. They're in the heads. Um, and so when I depict Terry Ignota, to me, scarier than the technology of the tracker is the fact that nobody questions it. Uh, scarier than the policy that no one may talk about religion is the fact that we see very few people express any dissent about this policy and that everyone trusts that, yes, the silence is positive. Uh, and so there are a bunch of questions that are in our heads that we see a thing and our alarm bells go off. And the fact that the alarm bells don't go off for this society, that's the scary part. <laughs>